Hey everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch, where we take a closer look at the wide, weird, and wonderful world of running. I am your host, Jonathan Ellsworth. I am also the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Off the Couch is presented by the CBG Trails app, which is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. Today, my co-host Brendan Leonard and I talked to Sarah Lavender-Smith. Sarah ran her first marathon back in 1995 and has gone on to complete 80 marathons and ultramarathons since. Sarah is the author of the excellent book, The Trail Runner's Companion. She is also a columnist for the magazines Ultra Running and Trail Runner. She also keeps an active blog at therunnerstrip.com. And she is the co-host of the Ultra Runner podcast. In our conversation, we talked to Sarah about what inspired her to start running, the problem of quote-unquote mommy guilt, the importance of being process-oriented, running marathons with horses. That was a whole new discovery for me. Her relationship with competitiveness. And we even talk about Sarah's favorite topic in the world, smoking. Okay, well, technically, we talk about how she gradually went from smoking and partying to running ultras. Sorry, Sarah, please don't kill me. I just couldn't resist that. Anyway, Sarah has strung together a very interesting life and career, and she has a ton of insight to offer both newbies and seasoned veterans alike. So we hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. And now here is Brendan Leonard to kick things off. Thanks for coming on the show, Sarah. Hey, thank you guys for having me on the show. I'm so excited by your new podcast. I really enjoyed your first episode. Oh, good. Uh, Thanks. Thank you. You and my mom. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's really what we're aiming for. As long as Brendan's mom is happy, we're happy. Yeah, she like she likes everything that I do though. So yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She's very proud. Um, Yeah. So Sarah, you have a number of different identities as a lifelong runner, over 40,000 miles. Uh, I don't know what your official count of marathons and ultras is. I'm guessing it's over 75 now. Yeah. If you, if you combine marathons and ultras, I've done over 80 or more events. Yeah. That's a lot. I mean, it's, it's amazing, but also author, uh, coach, podcast, co-host. So when you throw in that you are also a parent uh, of two kids, it kind of is, you're kind of one of those people where I think, how does she make time to do all this and still be pretty dang fast? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of an amazing career, really. Thank you. Do you feel like you can sort your career into phases or do you have turning points? Yeah. Very much so insofar as, I mean, my life has a before running and an after running dividing point. I mean, for some women, it's like before kids and after kids. And for me, it was, you know, March of 1994, half my life ago, about two months before I turned 25, and now I'm about to turn 50. So really, um, a quarter century ago, um, I was a late blooming athlete, uh, not athletic earlier in life. And, and right before I turned 25, I took up running. So that was the, the big life shift that I never saw coming. 
Um, and so I, I discovered this, this latent athletic streak and ran with it, so to speak. And, um, and from there, it divides into phases of really focusing on road racing from 10K to marathon. And then, and during that phase, having my two kids. Um, and then the transition to trail and ultra and really kind of ex- excelling or peaking and finding that. And now I think perhaps there's a third phase of, um, uh, I don't want to call it slowing down, <laughs> but the more mature phase um, of, of running perhaps in a different way or, or for different reasons. And um, it includes coaching. So I became a coach about five years ago and wrote the book um, that I wrote. And so that's the more recent past. Sarah, can I actually dive in for just a sec? I'm, I want to hear a little bit more about the non-athlete phase of life, which I guess you're claiming goes from something like zero to 24 years old. <laughs> so were you, were you, were you working out at all during this period? Were you just like, I don't like to do things like what, what? Yeah, I did have a Jane Fonda aerobics phase. Perfect. If that counts. It does count. <laughs> I no, I, I was not I it's interesting because I was raised in an outdoorsy family. So with our Colorado roots and being in a rural area, I, I was outdoors a lot, but I was not in a sporty family and I was not encouraged to do sports. And I grew up with two parents who both smoked a couple packs of cigarettes a day and weren't even though they were outdoorsy and liked to go fishing and drive their four-wheel drive truck around. Um, they were not athletic or sporty. And so um, my only, the only sport I really got into as a kid and a teenager was horses. So I was, I was really horse crazy. Um, but that's, there's nothing, uh, that doesn't really promote cardiovascular fitness. <laughs> um, so I had no, I had no aerobic base. And then, you know, of course I, I, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So I took up smoking early and was a smoker and a partier. And, and so, um, I, the first inkling of, of having an interest in, and in, in being fit happened in college when I was at UC Santa Cruz and my wonderful older siblings, um, you know, I told them I, I had a rental downtown in Santa Cruz and I hated taking the, you know, it was a pain to take the bus up to campus and so my big brother and sister pulled their money together and got me a mountain bike. And this is sort of the first generation of mountain bikes. And like, this must've been 1988. And I got on that bike. I could barely ride it, but <laughs> UC Santa Cruz is built on a hill and I live down near the ocean. I could not even get myself to the <laughs> base of campus, let alone to the top of the hill where my classes were. And I was it's like sparked something in me, this stupid bike. And, and it was, it became a goal. Like I'm going to ride up this hill to class. And so that was my first interest in quitting smoking. So, because I mean, I was just, my face was tomato red and I, I couldn't even get anywhere near the top of the hill. So that was the first time I had an inkling of like, okay, I want to work on this. And it helped me quit smoking. And I, started riding my bike all the way to the top of class at UC Santa Cruz. And that was just a revelation, a revelation athletically. And then once I stopped smoking, I, I cut back the drinking and partying because I didn't want to, I knew that if I 
partied, I'd want to light up a cigarette again. So all this put me on a healthier path. And then I wanted to lose weight because I was pretty chunky. Um, so then I got into things like aerobics and, and stuff, but I never considered myself a runner. I just, I ran a tiny bit in high school and it always felt like punishment or for the sake of a, a diet. So I never, ever ran at all. I mean, the farthest I'd run before 1994 was six laps on a track with like a break in between the laps, so <laughs> a mile and a half. <laughs> huh. Brendan, I love that our ratio so far on this new podcast of people who sort of like started running to quit smoking, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, it's like we're batting 50% right now. So I'm curious to see what happens to this ratio, but, um, yeah, running is the, is apparently the new way for any smokers out there. This is, this is how you quit. Also call us. Well, have you on the show apparently yeah <laughs> i that's that's one thing you and i have in common sir i i tried to i started training for a marathon to quit smoking in 2005 well actually i mean it was the smoke actually to clarify quitting smoking happened in college when i was doing the yeah. bicycling so i still i didn't start oh, okay. actually running until a few years later when i was in graduate school so but we have that in common brendan that we both went to journalism school and i was so stressed out by journalism school that i think that had part I needed to experience success in some way or have something I could control since journalism school is so hard <laughs> and I think like discovering running and being able to uh run a hmm. couple of miles just clicked at that year you know I wonder I would be curious if you find this same thing like when I when I was quitting I was you have these moments of you have five minutes of just standing outside and you know smoking a cigarette and you have that stillness where you can think about what you're going to write or the things you have to do and you're able to come up with some ideas or whatever. And I, that was one of the things I was terrified of when I was going to quit smoking. I'm like, well, how am I going to think, you know, and running has largely replaced that at this point where yeah. I'll go run for a couple hours. I wonder if you have a similar uh, or if you can even remember, I guess, at this point, since it's been quite a while. But I mean, I have such an antipathy toward tobacco. I mean, I, I think it's I can't believe we're talking so much about this because I hate smoking <laughs> so much. And it's such a, something I'm so ashamed and angry about. And, you know, I blame it on both my parents um, decline in health. And so I yeah. <laughs> so it seems like ancient history, to be honest. <laughs> my whole goal now is just we're going to rename this podcast like the running and smoking podcast. And I'm just going to try to bring this up as often as possible, I think. But anyway, I actually really, I love hearing these stories. And I, I actually think, I mean, this is rather than, you know, you come on and it's like, here's this amazing and accomplished runner and coach and the rest. It's like, I think those origin stories are hugely helpful um, for just people being like, removing the obstacle of like, yeah, I mean, it's too late for me to get started or I just, I've never been that runner person. And so I don't know, I think Brendan, both your story and Sarah's story, um, or, or maybe, maybe it's only good for me to hear, but I, I think there's some others out there too. Running for me is my healthy habit and my healthy w thing that triggers good thinking. It also affected my parenting. And so far as, um, because of how I got started running and I, I discovered it on my own terms and, and in graduate school as a young adult, like I never felt strongly about my kids running or I never pushed sports on my own kids. And 
you know, if they and and they tried running a little bit, but they developed in other areas. And so I don't know. I just think um, it's helped me as a parent just accept my or have faith that my kids will find what works for them athletically also. Mm-hmm. Say, say, say more about that, Sarah, if you don't mind. Meaning, should I understand what you just said to mean that you wondered in the early days, like, you know, should I be encouraging or gently nudging my kids to get into this thing? That was, it sounds like that was a question for you. No, it's more that, I mean, I think a lot of runners who are parents really want to see their, you know, they get so excited about introducing their kids to running and want to sign them up for 5Ks and 10Ks. And um, I felt that as well early on when my kids were in grade school and I thought, oh, I want them to be runners. I want them to get into cross country. And then it's just so early on kind of backfired and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they didn't want to be running 5Ks. <laughs> so I backed off and stopped. And I think it's so important for parents to provide a healthy role model of um, you know, just being healthy and outdoorsy and expose kids to different opportunities. But I don't, I mean, my son got into baseball and then other things. And my daughter does other things. So I don't really mind that they didn't follow in my footsteps, so to speak. I'm, uh, I've of course read your book, The Trail Runner's Companion, um, which is phenomenal. And I actually used a couple of things I learned in it in my last race, which was really helpful. Um, oh, really? So oh, and, well, I want to turn the tables and hear about um, Hellbender. So we'll have to talk about that. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe later. It's that's not. No, let's let's do that, Sarah, because I want to hear too. And Brendan will never tell me about this stuff. What did you use for my book to help you through your last 100 miler, which I heard was extremely difficult due to the rain and everything out in the terrain? I think it was mostly due to me being not that tough, but uh, that was why it was so hard. But a lot of elevation gain, fairly technical. um, But yeah, it was just a long 36 hours for me. Um, But I, I remember I read your book, gosh, was that last fall maybe? And there was, there's a ton of great stuff in here. Um, And I think anybody who reads it will have five or six things that stick with them. But there was the, you made a point somewhere about not using drop bags or minimizing your use of drop bags. And I thought, I mean, this is just a revelation to me. And I thought back to my last hundred where I had a couple drop bags and I was really, you know, you would stop. And at one point uh, a volunteer couldn't find my drop bag. And that was (laughs) not that I'm at all pushing, you know, a time that I should care about five minutes here or there, but it was kind of like, okay, where is it? You know, and I'm looking for it. She's looking for it. And you lose some time. Then I'm trying to fill up my water bottles with my specific hydration, you know, whatever. Um, and it just slows you down and takes your momentum. So this race, I just packed my vest with as many calories as I could hold and didn't use any drop bags, met my wife at three different aid stations and it was perfect. And it just really kept me, kept me focused on moving all the time. That's great. Yeah. So it was, that was my fantastic tip from that book, but yeah, it was, uh, the race was tough. Um, and yeah, I was, I'm happy I survived it and I was felt really good about being able to put up with the punishment they dish out in North Carolina. Um, it's interesting to go, come from the West and go into the East and, 
you know, see see what these guys do. And boy, they are they're sadists, man. That was that was really yeah. painful. Yeah. And then and then you thank them for it when you're done, which is <laughs> a really strange thing. Thank you for letting me pay money to come and do this to myself. Oh. Um, so it was fun. But oh, it sounds like you did great. I mean, it, I mean, compared to it sounds like you've definitely improved since the Run Rabbit Run 100. Maybe <laughs> I, I don't know. Just to clarify. Mm your earlier understanding of what I said about drop bags. I'm actually not anti-drop bag. Like on a hundred miler, I think it's important to have drop bags for extra layers of clothing or your head, you know, whatever. But I'm going to pack drop bags, even though I will have some crew out there. I think a big mistake people make is being totally reliant on their crew meeting them. And if their crew misses the spot then and you don't have your headlamp or your nighttime jacket or whatever then you're kind of screwed so i think i think drop bags are smart so that you plan to do your 100 miler or whatever totally self-reliant and that you think of your crew more as luxury and if they show up and can find your drop bag for you and get it ready then that's great um, but yeah you tie drop bags especially in 50 milers or shorter this can be a real time suck and then are not as necessary you can just carry what you need and rely on aid stations mm-hmm. you you say in your book that um that in march 1994 you weren't a runner but you watched two friends finish a marathon do you remember who those two those friends were and where you were and what what the marathon was and what you felt like oh, and what absolutely. Clicked, like what clicked in your head that said oh i should try something like that so there are these two friends. Um, one was a friend from high school and his wife, and they've um, since they're not together anymore, but they're really close friends of ours. And um, it's funny, like they were my buddies and party friends. And I remember I used to go to their apartment in the Haight Ashbury district of San Francisco, and I'd go into their bathroom. And they'd have a stack of ultra running magazines. I'd be like, what is this? And I'd secretly, I mean, it kind of intrigued me. And I had, or, or runner's world also. And so that was my first, like, I didn't even know anything about the runner side of them other than that they were training for a marathon, which I knew nothing about or didn't understand it. Um, so uh, we went up to the Napa Valley Marathon to cheer them on. And the only thing that got me up there is really, I just wanted to go to the post-race picnic and wine tasting. Like I didn't care (laughs) about running. And I just remember, um, we saw them a couple of times along the course and there was something about seeing older people and just all the different body types that were streaming past. And my friend, the guy, he had a, it was, this was both their first marathon and to show how little I knew about marathoning um my friend who's the guy finished in close to three hours which is extremely fast and good for a first time marathoner and then my other friend she ran around 10 minute miles and finished like in four hours and 20 minutes i in no way appreciated the difference of that hour plus time like i thought they were both equally amazing i just couldn't believe that they could run all that way and um but i also it it just opened my mind to this thing that that um, that I wanted to try myself, and so it was the very next day. You know, I I I, uh, I had re I remember it so distinctly. I had Reebok's ankle high aerobics shoes, 
Oh yeah, <laughs> with and the I two a, with the two Velcro straps yeah, at the top. The yeah, Velcro flaps, and mm. I, so I put on those and like these heavy sweatpants. And um, we had a rental in North Berkeley at that point, and so I got in my Toyota Corolla because at that point we didn't have GPS, and I drove the car so I could use the odometer to measure a mile and a half, so I I would know how far to run. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to jog the whole way a mile and a half and then walk home. And then I, and I discovered, you know, all the awkwardness and everything that feels bad about running during the first mile started to slip away. And I got to the turnaround point and I was just fired up to run back home. And so I ran three miles for the first time ever and and made a plan that I wanted to return to the Napa Marathon the following year and run the whole thing and break four hours. And so I did. And so that, that be that, you know, I coached myself that year and that was the year I became a runner. And, and other than taking some breaks for postpartum recovery and a couple injuries, I really haven't stopped since then. Wow. And you, at some point you found a coach, like, pretty early on well I I did like many people in the late 90s I did the team and training thing and um so I had a wonderful coach here in the East Bay named Alfonso Jackson who's a real legend and so he's my first coach and he got me down to Boston qualifying times and helped me train for Boston in the year 2000 and he so he taught me a lot of the basics of just how to run um and you know, that was it. And then when I switched to trail and ultra, um, then I was mostly just reading everything I could find to read about it and, um, connecting with some real luminaries in the sport. I mean, you know, I don't know if you, I think I mentioned this in my book, the first ultra runner I really knew and learned about ultra running from is the one and only Ann Trayson, which was pretty special, um, because she happened to be my, you know, for those who are listening and may not know, Anne Trayson is the all-time top female ultra runner who won Western States an unprecedented 14 times, and a lot of her records from the 80s and 90s still stand unbroken. So she happened to live a block away from me in the North Berkeley neighborhood, um, actually it's the town of Kensington, and so I would see her just go by and run and and I started chatting with her and I wanted to do an article about her for our for a local publication so profiling her diving into her career and this was I guess 1997 98 it was when she was at her peak doing like winning both western states and comrades back to back two weeks and so she just really opened my mind um, to, so I learned about the sport through her before I even had it, any inkling that I would shift into doing it myself. So that was, that was pretty cool. Sort of like, you know, a girl who gets into soccer and Mia Hamm comes in to be her coach or something. You know? <laughs> I was going to say that that's the equivalent of sitting in your living room and see, you know, if you play basketball and LeBron James walks past your front window and, yeah. and you go up to him and say, hey, can I write an article about you for the paper? Yeah. And then in the early 2000s, there were just, it, there was a really burgeoning, wonderful ultra running scene here in Northern California that, again, before I really started to do it myself, I just, socially got to know some good 
ultra runners um, and learned about it that way. Sarah, can I ask you about that that scene, the ultra running scene, say about 20 years ago versus today? How do you talk about sort of say the evolution or the um, just the, the passage of time on this? Right. Well, I wasn't quite, I mean, that was 1999. I, I started, pl- I mean, other than meeting and being a neighbor to Ann Trayson, I really started <laughs> plugging it into it more in the mid 2000s from like 2004 to 2008 was when I really shifted to trail and, and graduated to ultra distances. So the main difference is it was pre Facebook and pre social media. So we used to, I, I mean, it was, it, there was a, it was so old fashioned, but in a wonderful way in terms of the community. And I mean, one thing that just popped into mind is there'd be this whole email network and we would write race reports and then we would send out a race report or someone would send out a race report with all these apologies. Like, and you don't have to read this, but in case you're interested, <laughs> it would be like all this verbiage. So whereas now everyone just, this was even pre-blog, you know, just emailing write-ups. Um, so that's one way it changed. Um, and I don't know, it was just, it is simpler and, and, <laughs> you know, um, I don't know what to, what to say. It was just, it, it felt very tight knit and very special and very fringe. Actually, I, the other thing I was doing at this time that introduced me to the scene and sort of the more fringe elements um, is it, from 1999 to about 2002, I took a tangent and got really into the sport of ride and tie, which is the um, combination. It's teams of two runners and one horse. And so it's an offshoot of ultra running and endurance riding and I, I hooked up with a guy and his horse and we partnered at a lot of events and there were a lot of ultra runners in that scene. So that was a really special introduction to running longer miles in the, um, on trail, but those miles were broken up by time in the saddle. So that was, that was a fun period. That was actually the first article I ever wrote for ultra running magazine. I think it was huh. in 1999 or something. Wow. I think the headline was, in this race, it's okay to take a ride. <laughs> <laughs> what, how many miles are you covering and then how many are you running and how many are you riding? Oh, you know, it all, dep- it, it all depends. But it's like an interval workout because you only go, um, you know, there are no predetermined tie points. You, you, you tie up your horse wherever there's a safe tree branch. So part of the strategy is, you know, if you're on a ridge line and there's nothing but grassland and there's no place to tie, tie your horse and get off and start running, then your partner who's running is going to have to run an extra long time. So you never know how far you're going to run before you see your horse and you're going to switch. So that's part of the, that's part of the intrigue of it. But I mean, these distances were 30 K to or 20 miles, 50 K. I did, a few and that they tended to be like 30 or more miles. So I'd run roughly half of that, but it was at a faster pace because you're running really fast and then you get a break on the horse. Huh? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's, that's a really interesting uh, <laughs> tangent there. I'll send you a picture. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. And did you have kids? Your kids are 
Did, were they born yeah, in 1989? I, they were born 1999, and, or no, 98 and 2001. Okay. Um, so they, my daughter just turned 21, and my son is about to turn 18. They're a young adult almost. So my my mother ran five miles a day, five days a week for about 10 years when I was a kid. And everybody in my very small town that I grew up in, you know, I would, people would say, oh, I saw your mom out running, you know, the other day. She's, you know, really gets after it. How did your kids respond to you doing like this whole other side of mom that was like this, this big thing that was becoming part of your identity? It's, it's just a lot of eye rolling at this point because my poor son, who's a senior in high school, all of his buddies who are on the cross country team, some of them follow me on Instagram. <laughs> 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 so he gets really annoyed. Uh, and like my son and I, um, we were just flying back from, from Denver the other week because we were at CU Boulder. for He's going to go to University of Colorado Boulder, so we went to Admitted Students Day. And one of his friends, we were, um, who I hadn't met, this other kid at the school, was getting a ride from the airport. And the, the first thing he says is, are you the ultra runner? And my son was like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> They're so over it. <laughs> And they and I, I feel, you know, I share things about them on my social media. And so they just think it's really weird when they they're at places or they see me at a race. Occasionally they do go to a race and people know about their know about them. And so I, I, I think I mean, they've been really supportive and I know they are proud. And, and the year that they they crewed me at Western States in 2016 was a truly wonderful family experience. But I just, I think they're kind of over it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Do you think the, like, there's a really long evolution of how we've reacted to women running in, uh, in the U.S., you know, from people trying to stop people from running the New York Marathon to people saying, oh, it's bad for you. Do you think it's changed over the course of your career? Well, thankfully, I'm not that old. I mean, it's like I started running in 1994, not 1984, when the first Olympic marathon happened. But no, I mean, I think it's, I've always felt really, really supported and encouraged in this sport. And it certainly has changed in terms, you know, it's changed a lot in terms of participation. And an argument can be made. It hasn't changed nearly enough because, I mean, women in trail and ultra running, especially at the longer distances, are still only a quarter to a third um, of the participation. Um, but I don't think it's changed. I mean, it's, I don't know what to say about that. I've always just felt really encouraged. I've been so lucky to have great female role models as well as great guy friends who are runners. Um, so, I mean, the only barriers to entry, which is a whole separate topic, is the barrier to entry in certain races like Hard Rock that are full and that have such ridiculously low female presentation. But yeah. don't get me started. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I was just thinking about uh, my wife saying something to uh, at a doctor's appointment about, oh, yeah, I'm training for a 50-mile race. And I think, uh, you know, she was – I think she had heard something from – some other health professional at one point, like, oh, that's really far. You shouldn't, you know, and 
it's kind of like, oh, come on. Are we really doing no, this? No, thankfully, no, I'd never had, I mean, that kind of stuff that you hear about, I've always had healthcare providers who are great sports doctors and really encouraging. And um, no, I mean, I think the, the main thing that I experienced that is more common and continues to today is the mommy guilt that women feel and a lot of it's self-imposed the the women who are mother mothers are i think more inclined to feel guilty about taking time away from their kids to run more so than the dads and i you know i wrote an um i'm for my column in ultra running at some point last year i wrote about like get over your guilt of running because I just feel like leaving your kids with a babysitter to go out and run for half a day or, or making your partner watch the kids while you go. I just think it's the best thing for your relationship and for yourself and it makes you a better parent. And, um, so that's the, I just would encourage, um, parents, both parents of both genders, especially mothers to like, don't feel like you have to do something so-called important like work to justify childcare. I mean, your your sport and your health and your time alone is important too. So I don't see anything selfish about that. I think it's really rejuvenating and also healthy for relationships to have the partner be the one in charge of the kids for half a day or even a full week. I mean, I the past few years I've taken off for a week at a time to go on a long running event um, that involves travel and I miss my kids during it and they miss me but in the end I think we're all closer for it and I feel better as a parent for it so that that's the one gender difference thing. Yeah I think you spoke about it in another interview where the multi-day stage races are they're so relaxing for you because that's all you have to do and you don't have to yeah. be, don't have to worry about your work or your role as a parent or uh, yeah. a partner and I think that's yeah. that is it's a really weird sort of vacation for like sounding yeah, normal I mean, people but... self-indulgent to be I mean that cut off but my my husband Morgan is just wonderful and supportive and I mean we're in a phase of life now that quite honestly is so much easier to be an ultra runner I mean my kids are self-reliant. We became early empty nesters because both our kids went to boarding school for high school. So that's why I, I mean, it's a lot different than when your kids, like as my kids were in, in grade school and middle school and doing sports that they had to be driven to. And we were both juggling jobs. So it, my life has more flexibility now. And so I'm just saying this. So all the parents who are listening in their thirties or early forties and feel like they're spread so thin with obligations that involve parenting and their work. It's like, it does get easier. <laughs> really does. Oh, that's great advice. Yeah. I, I was also curious, 40,000 miles and all these races is a ton of, a ton of running. What sort of injuries have you had that have affected that the most over that span of time? It's a really, it's a really long time to have kept going. I think. Yeah. So I had, um, it was in 2013, I was chronically injured with some interrelated injuries. And someone told me, and maybe they were quoting someone famous, that sometimes you got to break down completely to rebuild, right? 
So 2013 was the year I had just all sorts of my posterior chain from my glute and hamstring. It was all messed up. And my, my, I got a stress fracture in my second metatarsal. Um, and I just kept re-injuring myself. So that was when I just kind of hit the reset button and really analyzed what I was doing wrong biomechanically and how to improve my stride and how, how to straight. I mean, I was, I was doing a lot. I have very flawed biomechanics naturally. And so working on that and understanding how to prevent injuries by having better biomechanics and then also really how to um, design my training to build in more recovery um, and how to gauge pain and all those things um, really reinforced for me the concept that injuries are great teachers because I learned so much in that second half of 2013, which was um, really tipped me over from to from being a casual coach to friends to wanting to be a, a serious coach and and help others in that way. So miraculously, I've been basically injury free since 2014. Um, I have one you know, stiff upper hamstring issue that's really common among runners. Um, that's about it. And my other injuries were more just accidents, um, like falling downstairs. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or <less> running. <laughs> Not running related, just falling downstairs yeah. like separately. Yeah. yeah. Sarah, on this kind of coaching question, I am curious if there are a couple sort of most common things that people come to you asking about or looking for coaching on? Um, yeah, I mean, well, I think the a key reason anyone comes wants a coach is for accountability, is just to be accountable to someone so that you, you can self-coach, but it helps so much more to know that someone is looking at what you're doing, giving you feedback, holding up, um, keep you holding you accountable. Um, so that's a big thing. Um, and related to that is just help with scheduling. I mean, people come to me with these crazy complicated lives and they have no idea how to design a plan week by week, month by month, how to really put together a training block over four to six months, um, how to break that, that training block into distinct phases from, you know, base building for fitness and consistency, working up to more specific preparation, um, increasing volume, and then peak training, race prep, and then tapering, and then recovery, and sort of all these cycles that you want to go through, they need help with that, of someone to help take both the week-by-week view and the long view. Um, and then they come to me for uh, really just for motivation and feedback. Um, but often they, they come seeking a coach, uh, really to, to graduate into the unknown. So it may be graduating from road running into trail running or graduating to a longer distance with ultra running. Like maybe they've run a 50 K, but it's a big leap to 50 miler up to a hundred miler. Um, so those are, those are the most common things. And that's what I try to offer them. You've been through a lot of phases. And like you said earlier, you're sort of in a new one at this point of 
maybe you're not as fast as you were 15 years ago. How are you self-motivating throughout your career? Or have you looked for external motivation, inspiration from people? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think, um, I mean, I've written about this recently. I think I was flirting with some burnout or lack of motivation, especially around New Year's. And well, I, part of it is just for me understanding like what I feel like doing in terms of running. And so asking myself, okay, what do I really feel like doing? Not what should I be doing? What do I feel like doing? And what, what gets me excited about running? Um, and so a lot of it is less performance oriented and more just health oriented and um, travel oriented, like really discover. I mean, I went through this phase of really loving travel and doing travel. And so now it's, it's a way to get out and explore and connect with new places. So I'm really trying to train for and race in a way that feels new and takes me to new places um, rather than being competitive or caring quite so much about my performance. Um, my clients themselves really motivate me. I mean, I, I, I have these great clients who I just, I get so wrapped up in their training plans and I kind of live and run vicariously through what they're building up for. And then I think, you know what, I don't want to be all talk and no action. I want to, I want to be a good role model. And so I, you know, there's that quote by Eleanor Roosevelt, which is don't ask of others what you are unwilling to do yourself. And so I write these plans. I'm like, well, shit, can I go out and do that? You know? <laughs> like, that's a motivator. But, you know, I'm feeling more motivated now. And uh, I have some events on the horizon that motivate me. And I think, um, you know, I'm about to enter a new age division. And so kind of just wiping the slate clean, seeing what I can do in this next decade is motivating. Um, so but it's but running for me is not the be all and end all right now. It's like, um, I've got other things going on that excite me too. So running is my old friend and like, it's my comfortable shoe or my therapist. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just what I do and what I return to and to just, just to who I am. So mm -hmm. it's like, I can't imagine it not being a part of my life. Yeah. How, how important has it been or is it for you to compete with, other people in racing versus competing with yourself? You know, it all depends on the event and the circumstances. So I think that when I think about like, when's the last time I was really competitive and just like, I want to chase her down um, in a good way. Uh, and I think it was this event I did in 2017. And I mean, I'm smiling as I say this because it was competitive in a really fun way. And that's like the best part of competition is that when it, it brings the best out of you. And so um, this was 2017. I trained for this uh, self-supported stage race um, called the Mana to Mana Ultra. It was an inaugural event in, on the big island of Hawaii. And it was one of these um, seven-day, 250-kilometer uh, events where it combines camping with running, and you have to carry all your calories and sleeping gear and everything for the week. So it's, it's, quite, an, it's quite an event. And um, <clears throat> I had sort of 
God, I can't believe I'm getting into this, but I've started, so I'll keep going. So there were, I had done this sister event called the Grand to Grand Altar back in 2012 with this other woman who was going to be at this 2017 event. And I admit, like, we, I won't go into the details in case she's listening, but she got into my skin a little. And I'm like, I want to beat her. Like, this is a rematch. We had sort of something happened in 2012. And I was like, okay, this is, you know, and, and here's the kicker is, is um, instead of being competitive with her in a negative way, I completely bonded with her and we had a great experience together at the 2017 race and she helped me go farther but that was the race where I um in the last phase I was racing for the third place spot and there were just minutes separating myself and this other woman and that is such an you know I when I think back to when have I just completely depleted myself and done everything to to compete uh, it was at that race and I had nothing left of me and I, I got that spot with only it was like a two minute difference which over a week-long event I mean we're talking like I don't know 40 some hours or total cumulative time and they're only a couple minutes separating us and we were just racing balls out the last few miles so that was really so that's an example that it that's I do get competitive in a good way and it's just really exciting but Mostly now, it's just my competitor is my own watch and my goal time. And so I did that last weekend or two weekends ago at my last race. Um, I set a goal time based on a couple different factors. And I didn't care who was around me or how I stacked up against the other women. I didn't even know really who was racing and so that's liberating and that you can, instead of having the people around you feel like competitors, you feel like they're friends helping you carry, carry you along and your only competitors yourself and your watch. And so that's generally more how I approach competition now is just saying the bar. So like, I'm going to return to this event, um, the stage race this coming September, and I will have a goal time to beat my time that I did in 2012. And of course I'd love to podium at it, but you can't control who shows up. I have no idea who's going to show up, how he or she will do. So I just have that personal goal of trying to be better than last than I was at a previous time. Excellent answer. As a person with all this experience and as a coach and an author, is there a sort of piece of advice that you would give to people um, regardless of distance that they're trying to run, you know, whether they're trying to get in shape to run a 5k, their first 5k or 10k or, or you know, a hundred mile ultra marathon. Is there something that kind of a through line there for you that, that you've learned that you, uh, a piece of advice that you'd give people? One of the big, I mean, there's so many, the first thing that comes to mind is to be process oriented rather than caring so much about the one day race. Um, because paradoxically, if you, if you have a goal race, um, say like as many clients come to me saying, I want to run my first 50 K, I really want to PR at this. 
I think paradoxically, if you care a little less about that event and care more about the training and take the pressure off the event itself, you'll actually end up doing better on race day. So my advice is to care about the process of training and to make training day by day, week by week. That should be your goal. And I, I sometimes say to clients that, you know, the, the race is the icing on the cake. And first you have to bake the cake. So it's all about baking the cake. And then if you get to the starting line healthy and well-prepared, then, you know, that's, a, that's an accomplishment already. And you, the race should almost take care of itself. And so when people get these ideas of like, and these goals are just so focused on this one day event. Like I want to be an ultra runner. I want to, I want to run this ultra. Well, it's, it's not, to me, it's not really about that. It's about what you do every day and every week. And so to be a runner. Um, so aiming for that, for, for embracing that process. So that, that's one piece of advice. I'm curious, just given your experience and how many different runners you've worked with, I'm curious in asking what the biggest mistakes you see newer runners, newer trail runners making, and then maybe the related question, what are the biggest mistakes that you see experienced runners making? Um, yeah, those are great questions. Um, so with, with rookies, um, uh, a couple things come to mind. One I think they want to rush the process. I see a lot of runners, um, you know, they read a book or see a movie and they want to go from zero to a hundred miles in a year or less or zero to 200 miles even now. Um, and I, I, you know, it took me 20 years to work up to my first hundred miler from 1994 2014. So I'm like, what's the rush? You know, you will do so much better with experience. And so, so I wouldn't rush it. I mean, you, you, you don't have to go on a slow track like I did. And it, you, there are some phenomenal um, athletes out there tend to be younger who really can just jump right in and go from their first half marathon to 50 milers to 100 milers in nine months or whatever. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of potential um, for that backfiring in terms of self-pressure and injury. And it's like, again, what's the rush? Life is really long. <laughs> Take the long view. Um, I think other another common mistake is in terms of why people hire a coach or why people get into ultra running is um, they look at it as a, they basically have problems in their regular life um, and they look at running as an escape hatch or hiring a coach to fix all their problems. <laughs> it's not that they love running and really want to become a great runner. They want a coach to fix their problems. And so, you know, people come to me as wanting to hire a coach because they just have this insane work schedule or they're going through a divorce or they just had a baby and they're like, help me run. I'm like, well, you have to ask, like, is this really, life has many phases. Is this really the time to be training for your first 50 miler? Like, I would love to help you find, I would love to help you find running in your life in a way that's consistent and manageable, but I want running to be a stress reliever, not an added stress. So, um, you know, some people just 
get really into running for ego gratification or escapism. I mean, I think we all do. I'm God, I'm guilty of that for sure. But it's just, I think it's important to be aware of why you're running and what you're maybe running away from. As like more experienced runners, I mean, I think some of us train and race for quote unquote, the wrong reasons. Um, and so what are the wrong reasons? Well, one is FOMO, you know, fear of missing out. It's feeling like, oh, I got to be there. I want to, I don't want to miss out. They love the community, but maybe they're not really into, or they feel like they need to keep their ultra sign up listings fresh or whatever. Um, I was thinking about this because I, it hit me like I've signed up for a hundred miler in mid June which I'm not really ready. I'm not where I should be with my training. And I hit me. I think I signed up for it for the wrong reason. And I signed up for it out of a sense of duty or obligation to get a qualifier to re-enter the hard rock lottery, which is just, that's a whole other topic, but it's like this ridiculous addiction to, um, you know, this goal that's never going to come to pass because of their ridiculous lottery. So I'm hooked on, I'm, I'm like committed to going down this path of applying for something. But anyway, so <laughs> I signed up for this and I thought, my God, if I'm going to travel out of state and spend this many days of my life training for something, I have to really care about it. And so it was a kick in the pants to like get on the website and read race reports and say like, you know, screw hard rock. I have to do this right and care about this for the experience. And so I caught myself and thankfully that did stoke my motivation and I'm going to do it and do the best I can. And I'm getting excited about it. So those were a couple of, of mistakes potentially people make. And I, I'll, I'll add one more. I guess the thing I see among more experienced runners is what I'd almost call hubris, either failing to respect the distance or difficulty because we've done it so many times in the past. Like, yeah, I can knock this off. Um, and I think that I, I think I mentioned somewhere in my book about how ultras often play out like a Greek tragedy uh, and you pay for sins of arrogance and pride. <laughs> like inevitable. You're you're going to have a downfall <laughs> if you get too cocky. Have, so are you comfortable with the idea of at some point finishing your career without ever getting into hard rock? Or are you just kind of like, well, if this happens, I'll do it, but I, it's probably not. Or what is, what is your attitude towards it at this point? Well, I don't know. I mean, I have very mixed feelings about hard rock. I mean, I, so hard rock is, in my extended backyard in Colorado and I feel a real connection to the course and I've paced it so many years that, um, I just want the chance to see how I do. Now I can go out there cause I'm blessed to live in the area. Like I can go out there the week after July and kind of try to do it on my own or get, you know, but it's just not the same. I'd like to, I'd like to just try it. But then again, I'm kind of letting go. I'm like, geez, you know, there, there are so many other great races out there. I'm lucky enough to be able to run those trails. I'll be okay if it doesn't happen. I mean, I had a really powerful, ultimately disappointing experience because my second ever DNF doing the Uray 100 uh, or attempting it, I DNF'd at mile 66 last summer 
but um, that, you know, that race cropped up um, and it's a good alternative to hard rock. It's similar, but um, a lot of good things came out of that. And it, and it, I don't know, I still want to do hard rock. I'm really, I'm really <laughs> waffling on this answer. <laughs> feeling, I mean, I just feel like I've, um, I have such respect for the course and for the history of it. You know, it's, it's, it's honors the hard rock miners. And that's what my grandpa did. My grandfather worked in bird mine, which we run by right there. And, um, so I, I feel this, his spirit and others out there. I know that sounds corny, but I really do. I mean, at what point do they just, do you just become royalty and get to get in? at some you know there's like you know this she really has been here a lot maybe we should just let her in you know like you can't because i mean i'm not special there or if i am special there are a hundred other people as are more special i mean there's so many runners who are quote-unquote deserving of it so it's just it's just a mess (laughs) it's like they should do it they should do two two weeks in a row or four or something like that i don't know it's just it's like Burning Man or something. It's just a bit of a <laughs> I mean, it really, it's got, it's, it's whatever. Do you think it's harder than Burning Man though? I, I think it might be physically harder. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. It's, I've never been to Burning Man. I, just, I don't know why. It's <laughs> um, I, I think about the times I've actually had fun running um, or moments of joy or quasi joy. Because a lot of it is really hard work and not feeling that great. Do you have a few moments or, or one in particular that sticks out to you as, as a moment where it was like everything came together and just something that was a really, I guess, red letter day sort of feeling? Yeah. Oh, there. I mean, God, I'm being flooded with memory. So I'll just take the one the first one that comes to mind, which I write about in my book, which is um, I was blessed to get into Western States in 2016, and I, I, that's another race I've followed, you know, like a groupie all these years, and I was really curious, would it live up to the hype? You know, is it really all that special? And the magic that happened, I mean, all day there was magic, but then the magic that happened after Forest Hill in the final 40 miles with my buddy and pacer Claire Abram by my side. And it was just one of those, um, uh, those moments where everything came together in terms of my strength and determination and preparation. And I had my mindset on that goal of breaking 24 hours. And all day I had been behind pace, behind where I needed and wanted to be because of the heat in the canyons. And I mean, it's just a hard day out there. And so I had felt that goal slipping away and I turned it around. And that was when I was just able with Claire's, um, with Claire's camaraderie to just be a closer. And the, the two of us, like, I think that, you know, I think about what was so fun um, is just in the dark on the final, you know, from Green Gate to the finish, those final 20 miles, how many pairs of guys that we caught up to and passed. And, you know, and Claire has, it, here we are, two women, and Claire has this very polite um, 
British accent. And so they're, you know, we'd repeatedly, we'd come upon these guys like, hey, hey, nice work. And then they were expecting us to be two dudes. And then Claire would say, oh, hello, excuse us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it was just, we were just like really ran a strong final uh, few hours. And that feeling of, of when, when you have given up hope and then you rekindle hope, it's like, oh my God, this is going to happen. We're really going to make this happen. And so, so circling that track, getting there with 15 minutes to spare, like around uh, 23, 45 or whatever it was, it was, it lived up to all my dreams. So that was definitely one moment that um, I'm so grateful for that experience. And it was, it did feels like a once in a lifetime experience. Um, and I've just had uh, really powerful experiences um, just on training runs out in the Colorado mountains where um, I can't get a specific, you know, it's not an event or anything, but those moments where you just get teary and you get goosebumps and, you know, your whole life. It, I think it's when running makes you think about the the huge arc of life and you're going through life transitions and, and running really puts that all into clarity. Um, so I've had a lot of moments like that in the past just couple of years, I think, because I'm going through a lot of life transition with aging and moving and everything and my kids aging. And so, yeah, I, I get pretty, <laughs> I get pretty emotional out there. <laughs> <laughs> This is totally unrelated, but we have to plug your book. For sure we do. And so on that note, Sarah, your preferred place for people to find that book or purchase that book? Well, I mean, it's available on Amazon, but I feel compelled to also give a plug for IndieBound.org, which is the network of independent booksellers and support your local bookstore. So go ask your local bookstore to order it for you. (laughs) But you can find it on Amazon too. And your preferred places for people to connect with you? So I use Facebook and Instagram and I have a blog called the runners trip.com. Uh, so I still blog. I know blogging is kind of a dying medium and a lot of people just stick lots of paragraphs on their Instagram posts, but I try to still blog so you can subscribe to that. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Sarah. This is, this is fantastic to, to have someone with your experience and success and just knowledge. Well, now I'm, I'm realizing we didn't hear anything about really about Hellbender. So I do want to hear about that at some point, but wait, remind me what, are you going to be a bighorn also? Yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So we could run together. Yeah. I think, I think it's probably feasible (laughs) for us to run the first 50 or 60 feet together. I mean, and then I'll just catch you later. I mean, Oh, man. But yeah. Well, hey, Sarah, thank you so much again uh, for this time and, and for the for the good conversation. And um, yeah, we should we should do it again sometime. Um, really what I'm I shouldn't say this out loud, but what I'm dreaming now is, you know, your dream of getting into hard rock happens. And then we have a follow up conversation hearing all about that. That's what I'm going to just put that out there and, and we'll see if uh, if that version of events uh, comes to be. Well, then you better keep this podcast going for a good decade. Okay. Talk, we're going to be talking sometime around 
2029 when I'm about to turn 60. That's when I'm finally going to get into Hard Rock, give them the odds. And I am not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. Well, hey, thank you for this conversation. And um, yeah, we hope to talk again soon down the line. All right. Thank you so much for the opportunity and uh, great job on your podcast. I'm really glad you've launched this. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Sarah, you take care. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks so much to Sarah Lavender-Smith for the conversation. And you can find her book, The Trail Runner's Companion, at IndieBound or Amazon. Thanks also to my co-host, Brendan Leonard, and to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. And if you like what you are hearing so far from our new little podcast, we would very much appreciate it if you would leave us a nice rating or review in iTunes, share this episode with your friends, or leave us a comment in the show notes to this episode on the Blister website to let us know what you think. Until next time, keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.